Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning, and uh, Bakersfield is not unfamiliar to my family at all. Uh, We have been here from time to time shopping. There's not a lot up in Tehachapi. We have a Walmart now, but most other things, we either go down to Lancaster or over to Bakersfield. We've been to Bakersfield for AYSO soccer playoffs and uh, a couple of music events uh, with uh, our children, and so it's familiar to us for sure. It's not a, not a hard place to, to get around. We certainly are used to coming down from time to time. So it's a pleasure to be able to come and be with you this morning, and uh, let's just open with a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together to worship you in spirit and truth this morning. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, may you be honored, may you be glorified, and Lord, may we understand your word so that we can put it into action in our lives. In your name we pray, amen. Well, at times in our lives, we face difficulties. We may face times of prolonged illness. We may encounter difficult financial circumstances. We may have to deal with prolonged job loss. Actually, for a lot of people, the last year, year and a half have been those three things. We may suffer devastation caused by a storm or an earthquake. We may grieve the loss of a loved one. We may be confronted with trials because of our faith in Christ. There are many different kinds of trials, many different types of difficult circumstances that come our way. There are many individuals in Scripture that we read about that have faced difficult circumstances. One that really stands out in my mind from the Old Testament is Job. Job, if you have read that book, is a very wealthy man. He has... uh, a number of various flocks and possessions, his ten children. One morning he arose to worship the Lord and to pray for his children and their spiritual well-being as he did every morning. But by the end of the day, all of his children were dead. All of his flocks or possessions were either stolen by raiders or destroyed by fire. Most of his servants had even been killed. Job lost more in one day than most of us lose in a lifetime. I I can't even begin to fathom how Job might have felt. But regardless of how bad things were, he didn't curse God as his wife encouraged him to do. What did he do? He blessed God. It says in Job 1.21, after all of this, he says, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
That's a proper response to difficulties in one's life. Some of us don't respond the way Job did. Some of us may get angry at our situation. Others may fall into depression. Others still may be filled with anxiety and worry over these things. And then there's those of us that just whine and complain as we go through these things. But how should we respond to difficulties in our lives? How should we respond to the trials that come our way? How should we respond to these things? What should our attitude be when we face difficult circumstances? None of us are immune. At some point in our life, we will all face difficult times. Well, just as we can see Job's response in the Old Testament, there's a New Testament example, and that is the Apostle Paul. We can learn from the Apostle Paul's example in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. And as you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, I want to just highlight what Paul has already written to the Philippians in the book prior to this passage. In chapter 1, Paul had expressed his thankfulness to the Philippians. He informed them of his present circumstances of being imprisoned in Rome. In chapter 2, he had exhorted the Philippians to be united by humility and to remember the example of Christ and to shine forth as lights in a dark world. In chapter 3, Paul had warned the Philippians against both legalism and lawlessness. And now in chapter 4, prior to verse 10, Paul has exhorted the Philippians to be united, to be joyful, to be prayerful, and to be thinking on the right things. Now in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, Paul begins to conclude his letter to the Philippians by expressing his appreciation to them for their present concern demonstrated by a gift that they had sent him. So let's read this passage. I'm reading from the New American Standard, which I believe is what I have up on the screen there. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me just a marvelous passage of Scripture. And in this passage, as Paul thanks the Philippians for their care and concern over him, he identifies three ways that believers should respond to difficult circumstances, three principles that we should apply to our life. How should we respond to difficult circumstances? How should we respond what attitude should we have? What principles can we apply? First, we need to respond in joy. Second, we need to remain content. And third, we need to rely on Christ. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let us begin with first. 
we should respond in joy when we endure difficult circumstances. And we see this in verse 10. Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Certainly, the Apostle Paul had faced many difficult circumstances in his life. Just read the book of Acts. You'll see cer certain situations he had experienced. He had been beaten. He had been imprisoned. He had gone hungry. He had faced a challenge from false teachers. He even survived multiple shipwrecks. You know, I don't know anyone who has survived a shipwreck. I can't imagine surviving two. And as he writes this letter to the Philippians, where is he? He's imprisoned in Rome. He had been imprisoned in Rome for quite a little while. But what's Paul's attitude? It is not anger. It is not depression. It is not fear. It is not anxiety. It is not, why me, O oh Lord? What is his attitude? It is joy. It is joy. And here in verse 10, Paul expresses both the ultimate cause for his joy and the immediate cause for his joy. So let's start with the first expression. Paul expresses the ultimate cause for his joy. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. You know, the term rejoice, Cairo, means to rejoice and be glad. It's a cheerful, happy, joyful attitude. It's not some sort of happiness or satisfaction based on his present circumstances. He's not joyful that he's in prison. It's rather a deep-seated confidence that no matter what the circumstances, all is well. It is the joy that is the central theme of this letter. Over 16 times in the book of Philippians alone, we have the words joy or rejoice. It's the epistle of joy. Notice ultimately that the cause of Paul's joy was not the gift that the Philippians sent by way of Epaphroditus. But what does he say? I rejoiced in the Lord. The Lord was the source. The Lord was the cause of this joy. Paul was not rejoicing in circumstances. Paul was not rejoicing in the reception of a gift. Paul was not rejoicing over physical provisions. Paul was not rejoicing over financial gain. What was Paul rejoicing in? Or maybe better we should say, who was Paul rejoicing in? I don't mind if you answer when I ask questions, by the way. The Lord. He was rejoicing in the Lord. And by saying that his joy was in the Lord, he was saying that it was flowing from his union with Christ. His joy came from his relationship with Christ. It was true joy. It was Christian joy. It was biblical joy. That might lead us to ask the question, what is biblical joy? Have you ever thought of that? I mean, we can say joy. I have joy. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. But what is joy? This biblical joy, first, biblical joy is a gift from God. Listen to Psalm 4, 7. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Psalm 16, 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Where does joy come from? 
What does the psalmist say? Both of these psalms are written by David. What does David say the source of true joy is? Where is it found? It's in the Lord. It's in God. Biblical joy is a gift from God. He put gladness or joy in the psalmist's heart. Second, biblical joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit singular of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. A single fruit of the Spirit is the outflow of our relationship with Christ. Joy is part of that outflow. It is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Third, biblical joy is produced as God's Word is received and obeyed. Listen to what John says in 1 John 1, 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. What is John writing? The Word of God. And why is he writing it? So that their joy may be made complete. John MacArthur says, because it is transforming truth, John's message is one that brings consummate joy, produces full satisfaction and complete fulfillment that can never be lost. In other words, the very Word of God brings joy. The Word of the Lord brings joy. You should all be full of joy this morning. Amen? Because when the word of the Lord is proclaimed, we should all be filled with joy. Anytime the word of God is taught, even to the children in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or whatever other options there are, anytime the word of God is taught, it, it should bring joy. Anytime we're reading the word of God, Should it bring us joy? Well, if we believe what the Scriptures say, then that certainly is true. Joy is produced as God's Word is received and obeyed. Fourth, biblical joy will thrive in the midst of trials. James 1, 2. We're probably all very familiar with considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 1 Peter 1, 6 is very similar. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Joy thrives in the midst of trials for the believer, for those who are in Christ. Fifth, biblical joy focuses on future glory. This is often overlooked. Paul says in Romans 12, 12, Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Rejoicing in what? Hope. Rejoicing in hope. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. We rejoice with hope now because of what is to come. What is the revelation of His glory that Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 4.13? It's the return of Christ for His church. That is our blessed hope. That is what we're longing for. That is what we're living for. We're striving to honor and please Him in the here and now with that future hope 
of glory. Biblical joy focuses on future glory. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. This is what he has in mind when he's talking about rejoicing or having this joy, responding in joy. He's responding in true joy, biblical joy. But we mustn't forget the word greatly. If you look back at Philippians 4.10, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. This word greatly should not be overlooked. It's a unique adverb which means immensely. It comes from a root from which we get the term mega. You know, when we talk about a, a large earthquake, we might call it a mega quake, or a large storm might be a mega storm. Why do we call them that? Because they're huge, they're immense. Paul's joy was mega joy. He rejoiced in the Lord greatly. It was huge. It was immense. Paul greatly rejoiced in the Lord. The Lord was the ultimate cause for his joy. And Paul not only expresses the ultimate cause for his joy in verse 10, but he also expresses the immediate cause for his joy. He says that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, at first, these words might seem to be almost as if they are an, a rebuke of the Philippians. Well, now at last, finally, you've expressed your concern, but that's not the tone here at all. If you don't read the whole verse, then you won't catch that it's actually an expression of appreciation. Paul appreciates their gift and concern. And he'll restate this aspect of appreciation again in verse 14 when he says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul is stating the immediate cause for his joy. It had been probably 10 years since the Philippians had sent a gift to Paul to meet his needs when he was in Thessalonica. For that extended period of time, they remained concerned, but they didn't have an opportunity to send a gift to him. Paul says, you have revived your concern for me. They had sent a gift 10 years prior. Now they've revived their concern for him. And the term revived is a wonderful poetical term, anatholo, which comes from the horticultural practice of Paul's day. It denotes flowers or plants blooming again. It means to shoot up again, to sprout again, to grow green again, to flourish again. It really is a proper term to express his affection for their gift. A beautiful poetical term. It's like a person who rejoices over the first signs of spring. Now, I know in Bakersfield it never really gets cold. There really isn't a true winter here. I'm, there is a winter. I've been here in January at 8 in the morning for a soccer game, and it's chilly, but it's not like we might have in other parts of the country. We lived in Nebraska for about six and a half months. Yeah, they have winter. Below zero many nights. I don't miss that at all. 
But here it's like a person rejoicing over the signs of spring after a hard winter. Paul rejoiced to see again the signs of personal concern coming from Philippi after a long interval of silence. And he's saying, your care for me has blossomed afresh. He's rejoicing over the active interest that the Philippians are taking in his difficult circumstances. He's really saying, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. He knows that they have always been concerned for him. They simply didn't have the opportunity, and we don't know why. We don't know if it was due to unfavorable circumstances such as the lack of the right person to send a gift or maybe a lack of funds to send to Paul, maybe the lack of proper weather for suitable travel. We don't know the circumstance. We know from this statement that Paul is saying, I know you've always been concerned, but now at last you finally have sent this gift. It came at the proper time while I'm suffering difficult circumstances. I'm imprisoned in Rome. Your care for me has blossomed afresh. Whatever the case, the focus of this verse is that Paul practiced what he preached. How do we know this? Well, we know according to Philippians 3.1 and again in Philippians 4.4, what is Paul exhorting the Philippians to do? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. This was often Paul's example. It was actually in Philippi, according to Acts 16, verses 20 through 28, where Paul and Silas had been imprisoned in Philippi. They were beaten and imprisoned, and what was their response? It's joy. They responded by praying and singing hymns to God. Paul was a great example of what it means to respond in joy, and we need to follow Paul's example. Well, like Paul, not only should we respond in joy, but second, we should remain content when we face difficult circumstances, when we experience difficult circumstances. That's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Remain content. Just as joy is not in our circumstances, neither should contentment be governed by our circumstances. And Paul emphasizes here in verses 11 and 12 that his contentment endures. He remains content regardless of his circumstances. And there's two points that Paul makes here regarding this contentment and circumstances. First, Paul remains content in his current circumstances. What are his current circumstances? I've already said numerous times, he's imprisoned in Rome. He notes in verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That term whatever, if you took that straight literal out of the Greek text, it's probably better translated in which, in which. So you might read it, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in which circumstances that I am in, in these current circumstances that I am in, while he's imprisoned in Rome. The adjective content is only used here in the New Testament. 
The noun forms used in a couple of places, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, 1 Corinthians 6, 6, and it means to be sufficient for oneself, strong enough or possessing enough to need no aid or support. It speaks of being independent of external circumstances. It was a term that was used to describe the person who through discipline had become independent of external circumstances and any situation that may arise. It was actually a favorite word in the vocabulary of the Stoic philosophers of the New Testament times. They would refer to the independent spirit and free outlook on life characterized by the wise man. It expressed the doctrine that man should be sufficient in himself for all things, and by the power of his own will, resist the force of circumstances. Paul borrowed this term from the Stoic philosophers to declare that he too had acquired the virtue of a spirit free from worry, the virtue of a spirit untroubled by the ups and downs of external events, independent of people and things. However, Paul's use of the term is quite different. The self-sufficiency of the Christian is an independence of the world through a dependence on God. It was a contentment of faith rather than a contentment of pride. Paul was content in his present circumstances. He was free from worry. He was independent of the world because he had a dependence on God. Instead of being self-sufficient, you might say he was God-sufficient. He was sufficient in the all-sufficient Christ. Well, he was not only uh, content in his current circumstances, but second, Paul remains content in contrasting circumstances. He says in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need interesting structure here. The first statement is a general statement, and then he gives two contrasting examples. He starts with a general statement, which can be literally rendered, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. I know how to be humble. I know how to have an abundance. And the term humble means to, to make low. It means to lower it means to humble or abase oneself. And, and uh, Paul knows what that's like. In this context, it has more to do with physical circumstances than carrying a moral or spiritual aspect to it. Paul's talking about physical provisions right now. I know how to live in humble means. I know how to live in times of affluence. He understands a lowly position. And the term prosperity here is really an antonym. It means to exceed a fixed number of measure, to be over and above a certain number of measure, to abound, to have an abundance, to be rich. So Paul is sharing, I can deal with either situation, whether it means I have to live in humble means or abounding with everything that I might possibly need. Or want. Paul had experienced times of hardship, times of suffering, times of poverty, as well as times of ease, times of abundance, and times of blessing. 
Paul knew how to exist regardless of his circumstances, and he reinforces this statement with a couple of contrasting examples. First, Paul makes a contrast between having plenty to eat and not having enough to eat. He says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled or going hungry. Literally, in everything and all things in every particular circumstance, in all circumstances generally, I've learned the secret. term learned is an interesting term. Mua'o means to teach fully, to instruct, to be accustomed to, or to give one an intimate acquaintance with. And it comes from a root which means to initiate. Paul had been initiated into various life circumstances. The term being filled is used of feeding or fattening animals in a stall, force-feeding animals for the purpose of fattening them, birds gorging themselves on their prey, or satisfying a hungry crowd. It pictures an extreme abundance, a plate overflowing, a buffet spread out before them. Paul had experienced times in his life where he had more than enough to eat. In contrast, Paul also mentions going hungry, which really is the direct opposite. One speaks of an overflowing plate, the other speaks of an empty plate. Paul has learned to deal with either situation. He has learned to be content with either situation. The second contrast he makes is in the statement of having an abundance and suffering need. And this is more speaking of material prosperity or material deficiency. It's really speaking of possessions. And when one speaks of these possessions, you might be thinking clothing, shelter, money, having the material possessions to get by with in life. Paul had experienced prosperity. Paul had experienced deficiency, suffering need. And he uses these contrasts to emphasize that single point. He has learned to be content regardless of his circumstances. In one of his famous short stories, Leo Tolstoy asks the question, how much land does a man need? In the story, a farmer is offered an opportunity to gain as much land as he can walk around in one day for a thousand rubles. Start off, walk around whatever plot of land you want for a thousand rubles. It's yours. The only requirement was he had to make it back to the starting point by sunset or he'd have to forfeit it all, even the, the money. So the next morning, the farmer set out walking around as much land as possible. He started out at a fast pace, a brisk pace, but by noon he was tired and exhausted because he'd gone so far, but he thought, I could go a little further and still make it back. By late afternoon, he realized that he was too far away. He may not make it back in time, so he began to run back as fast as he could. With every fiber of his being, with every ounce of effort, he was sprinting back to the starting point. And just as the sun was getting ready to go down, he reached the finish line, collapsing from exhaustion, breathing his last breath, and died on the spot. And the servants came and dug a hole six feet deep, six feet long, and three feet wide, and buried him in it. The answer to the question, how much land does a man need? 
enough for a grave. The point of the story is that we cannot obtain contentment on our own because we always want more. We always want more. But true contentment is the God-given ability to be satisfied with the loving provision of God in every situation. We need to remain content regardless of our circumstances. Instead of reacting with great anxiety or fear when we are placed in these trying circumstances, we need to follow Paul's example here. Instead of being self-sufficient, we need to be God-sufficient. We need to trust God in any and every situation we face. Paul later says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Of course, the emphasis there is on what? Needs, not wants. Well, not only should we respond in joy and remain content, but lastly, and this one will be quick, like Paul, we should rely on Christ when we encounter difficult circumstances. Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who's the him? Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These are well-known words that climax Paul's personal confession here. He affirms with assurance and humility that he is able to be content in all things. He's able to respond in joy in all things because he relies on Christ who gives him strength. Now, I have to say this is a terribly misquoted verse Quite frequently, people wrench this out of its context, and it's often understood on a popular level to mean that when Paul was empowered by Christ, nothing was beyond his capabilities, but that's not what it means. We have a couple of pictures or items at home with verses on them, and one of them is Philippians 4.13, but I have to remember, it doesn't mean what you think it means. it really needs to be kept in its context here. And when you leave it in its context, it becomes clear what it means. Paul actually answers two questions here. First, he answers what he relied on strength for. Why did Paul need strength? The the term all things in verse 13 picks up the thought from the previous verses, same exact phrase that's previously translated in any and every circumstance. The all things is the same phrase. That's what he's referring to. The any and every circumstance that he has faced. Whether that's fullness or hunger, abundance or lack. The verb can do means to have power, to be competent, to be able. It signifies that Paul can handle or cope with all these things, abundance or lack, because of Christ's strength. And that's the second question. Who did Paul rely on strength from? Who gave him the strength? Through him who strengthens me. Through Christ. Paul's self-sufficiency was due to the sufficiency of another. It was not his own strength that enabled him to endure, but it was the strength of Christ. And it's interesting The term to strengthen is often used by Paul to describe the mighty work of the exalted Christ in the lives of believers. A couple of examples, Ephesians 6.10, 
Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. In the strength of whose might? In the strength of Christ's might. It's Christ's strength. Later, when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. Who has strengthened Paul? Christ has strengthened Paul. It's Christ's strength. Paul can endure these various circumstances because it is Christ who gives him strength. He wasn't a stoic, was he? He wasn't boasting in his own self-sufficiency. His self-sufficiency came from being in a vital union with the all-sufficient Christ. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what circumstances you're going through. This last year and a half has been rough for a lot of people. But we need to remember that if we are here and we are in a vital union with Christ, if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to draw closer to Him. We need to rely on His strength. We shouldn't get mad at God. We shouldn't turn our backs on Him when we face difficulties. We need to be sufficient in our all-sufficient Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his book, Simple Faith, Chuck Swindoll cites a poem that really expresses discontent so prevalent in our society. I want to read you just a little bit of this. He writes, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. It was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mine without limitations. My life is over, but I never got what I wanted. Doesn't that express the discontent that we see all around us? And maybe even we have. But as Christians, our perspective is to be different. We're to be dependent and content in the all-sufficiency of Christ. And this all-sufficiency in Christ responds in joy when enduring difficult circumstances. It remains content when experiencing difficult circumstances, and it relies on Christ when encountering difficult circumstances. So as we close this morning, let me ask you a few questions. Are you content in Christ? Do you rejoice in the Lord when you face difficult circumstances? Do you remain content regardless of your circumstances? Are you relying upon the strength of the all-sufficient Christ? And if you answer no to any of those questions, then what changes do you need to make in your life so that you can be content in Christ. Let's pray.
We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.